0: The creative bit is the bit that we all get out of bed for in the mornings, developing those products or the packaging design or whatever it happens to be. But landing something on shelf is so complicated, involves so many different people. The process is probably the bit that gets everybody bogged down. So I wish there was a magic button that just made all that stuff kind of happen. And maybe one day there will be. Um, (laughs) But in the meantime, I think it's a necessity of landing things right first time.
1: Uh, today, I'm I'm delighted to be joined by Emma Beale, uh, Head of Product Innovation at Waitrose. Emma, welcome to the Innovate podcast. How are you today?
0: Well, thank you. How are you doing?
1: I'm very well. I'm very well. Um, I think, it's, is it fair to say, given the level of innovation at Waitrose, that you've probably got one of the best innovation roles in the food industry anywhere? Would that be a fair, a fair statement, yeah. do you think? <laughs>
0: Yeah, I'm pre- I think I'm pretty lucky. I think um, when we met uh, previously, we were talking to some of your um, other colleagues and stuff. I didn't realise how lucky I was. Yeah, I'm, I work for a brilliant brand in an industry that I've always loved. Um, and I have a fabulous team. And in the last couple of years, I guess that's all you could ask for, really. So yeah, no, I yeah. think you're probably
1: absolutely spot on. Very good. Well, uh, yeah, build, building on that, just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background for those that those listeners that maybe don't know you.
0: So um, I've been here at Waitrose for 11 years, but doing a variety of roles. But prior me, uh, previously to that, I spent a decade at PepsiCo. So learning my FMCG stripes, if you like, working on brands like Walker's Crisps, um private previously to that i my first ever job actually was at nestle as a graduate uh, on smarties and there's no better way to start than a tube of lovely uh, chocolate sweets So i've always been um in the food industry even as a consultant most of my time was spent working with other food organizations um it's fast moving it's innovative it's interesting it's the kind of stuff you can have a conversation with your family with over the dinner table so
1: yeah,
0: uh, yeah it's always been my passion
1: very good, very good. Um, so to start the um, every podcast episode, we we like to do some kind of rapid fire questions, just so the listeners can kind of understand a bit more about you. So uh, let's start with your um, your, your favourite town or city in the UK for for food, from from an eating out perspective, I guess.
0: So I'm really lucky I'm not far from London, um, but uh-huh. actually, um, I have to say Glasgow, I was up in on holiday in Scotland last year and I was really impressed by um, the variety of food they've got. But I was lucky enough to eat right. at Carl Bruch uh, and Unilome, I think, who's recently got a Michelin star. So I think they were much more adventurous um, and there were some great conversations around the food as well. So I would say if you're going to do a food tutorial, try we can do two in one, Glasgow and Edinburgh. But I definitely give Glasgow. Right, there.
1: interesting. Okay, oh, very good. Um, and then, what, what would your what would your final meal be? And limit it to three courses, ideally not a ten course taster. <laughs> um, it's
0: it's really easy. It would be um, Thai vegetable red curry with mango sticky rice. That's it. Oh, very good. very yeah. good. I absolutely adore the food of Thailand. I was lucky enough to live there for a couple of years. But a an amazing a mango sticky rice when mangoes in season you just cannot beat it. Yeah, I'm not a magic person, but uh, I'd happily have my final meal with that one.
1: There's no hesitation there at all. And what 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 I presume um, young people kind of ask you similar questions quite a lot outside of outside of work. What would you say to someone looking to get into the uh, the food industry, either just generically or into into product development?
0: Um. I, th- I think it's a great place to work. I think there's huge amounts of opportunity. So, I mean, my kids are, are just thinking about the A-levels and universities right now. And right. I would say at that stage, just do what you love, because you will find a career that meets it. And actually quite a lot of careers don't even exist at right now that those guys will go on to have. Sure. But if you go on to university and you do something that you're absolutely passionate about i don't think it matters actually not everybody has to have the same career path into food off um, afterwards so we've got trained lawyers we've got food nutritionists and um, what we've got is a passionate bunch of clever people who can apply their minds to customer problems so um, i wouldn't specialize too early would probably be my advice okay. uh, and then get some experience whether that's you know, waitressing, being near kitchens or getting into offices, product testing, over the holidays, that kind of stuff, just so you can see the breadth of what's available. But I don't think people have got a great awareness of exactly all the different types of jobs that you can do. So if right. you know you love food and you've got a great consumer mind and you can see opportunities, then, um, yeah, practice what you love and then find a job that you you, you fall into. So right. I was lucky enough. I did a management science degree. I didn't specialize in anything I worked for a number of brilliant brands um, as a graduate, so as I said, Nestle and, and PepsiCo. So I sort of fell into the food world, but once I fell into it, it's it's huge. Manufacturing, retailing, own brand, um, etc. So uh, technology, food technology is a huge one going forward. So, you know, yeah. even whether are science-based or management-based, I think it really doesn't matter. But um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's one of those that's continually progressing and it's a big enough industry that there's always a lot of churn and, and newness, so you can't get stuck in a job for too long. I think if, if you do a very um, small kind of sphere of influence role or a specialist role, you can end up doing the same thing quite regularly all the time, whereas in food, it's different from week to week.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Um, and then finally, if if you hadn't have landed in the food industry early in your career, do you, have, do you have a where else would you have loved to spend your career? Do you think?
0: So this is one that makes my kids laugh. So I would love to have been a weather girl. Um, I, which is really weird. <laughs> awesome. I love geography at school, right. and I don't live far from the European weather station. In fact, in Bracknell used to be the home of um, the weather stations here in the UK. Right. Um, I remember looking at Michael Fish uh, telling us there was a storm coming in the 80s that took down lots of trees and stuff <laughs> and thinking oh he's so clever i just um yeah weather has always fascinated me so i um yeah I, I had a go we were up at the bbc studios in salford recently and i had a go at presenting yeah. the weather and it was it was the best yeah weather oh, cool. girl
1: <laughs> brilliant um okay right we're going to move on to the um the 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 industry section i guess of the uh, of, of the podcast so we're going to delve into the world of products uh, innovation Within consumer goods, try and maybe pick apart some of the things that we think it could uh, potentially do better, and, and try and look at what, you know, what it could look look like in five years uh, from now. So, I, I, I kind of an opening question that I have used a couple of, of, of times. If you had to score the the UK uh, food and drink innovation sector for, I guess for impact, uh, what what marks out of ten would you give it, and and
0: why? Probably a 7 out of 10, because I think we're quite hard on ourselves in the industry when we look at you know the success levels of innovation in particular. Uh, but the food industry in a whole kept food on the shelves in the last couple of years, and um, that's that takes a lot of doing. Um, there's always things that you can do better. I don't think we've particularly, as an industry, worked fast enough in um, in the health sphere. I think we've been a little yeah. bit slow, so I'm really pleased to see the amount of kind of Veg vegan innovation has massively taken off in the last eighteen months, but yep. we were probably too slow in there. And there's lots of things we can do as food as medicine. So, but generally, I think in terms of keeping people satisfied through good food, we've done a reasonable, we've done a reasonable job.
1: Okay, interesting. You, you mentioned there the um, the the, the plant based sector. I, I find that really interesting. I, I find that they're doing stuff from an R and D perspective that maybe the rest of the food industry uh, isn't. Do you think there's stuff that, that other other kind of verticals could learn from from plant-based at the moment
0: yeah most definitely so we haven't we haven't had to evolve texture and flavor in the non um veg and vegan space, uh, space at all because it's all delivered through the you know the meat context etc so they've had to work very hard to deliver something that's as good as eating meat because there is a group of customers that are looking for that and they've yeah. done it through innovation um so people like the veg butcher you know, creating stuff, you know, was being created in the lab before it ever saw anything, you know, come to life in terms of product. Yeah. So I think they've been much more innovative in overcoming some of the hurdles to their product types. Than the rest of us have been where we've done it through different ingredients and flavor combinations and mouthfeel etc but using the toolkit that we've always had i think going forward we're going to have to play in that game probably to meet some of the hurdles on hfss in terms of sugar and salt replaces and. I think there are areas where we've probably been too slow to react because there's been too many other ways of getting around it, if you like, whereas the non-meat industry have had to overcome a massive barrier to purchase and and they've gone and invested and, um, you know, moving mountains, burgers and stuff look and feel like a meat burger. Yeah. Um, I think the states have been doing a relatively good job for a much longer period than we have, but it, we've been slightly slow to adopt some of that stuff. But also yeah. investing in technology, you know, we've been sweating assets, both as retailers and as manufacturers, the assets that we've got, because it's been a difficult two or three years for investment. So I think now is is probably the time to refocus those investments more in technological advances, yeah. most definitely.
1: Yeah, for sure. And and from what I I read about that that sector, there are some manufacturers making some quite big bets about uh, manufacturing process and capability that's highly kind of technology led that probably won't come to fruition for another five, maybe even uh, 10 years, which is, yeah, again, is is different to what what, certainly what I see across a lot of the industry.
0: So, I mean, vertical farming is another good example. It's still relatively small scale. But if you think about, you know, how much of our produce we could make at home and to reduce carbon footprint but also improve food security with everything that's going on in the war in ukraine etc vertical farming offers quite big opportunities but it takes Huge upfront investment, and you know all of our systems are set up to grow our lettuce in Spain, for example. So there are there are big technological advances, and there are big distribution and and system changes that would be required for us to to get to these things at scale. And and so they're in the difficult box right now. But I think there'll be external pressures which mean we have to do a lot more of that stuff in the future.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, and then just sort of look, looking across the, the the market as a whole, what what area do you think that the the innovation sector could could do a little better? I guess when it comes to, you know, launching really high impact kind of uh, products in, in, in an efficient way.
0: Um, I I think we still. I don't think we do a great job on packaging to be perfectly honest i think okay. quite often the products are good and you know we'll we'll put them in a pack that will go on a shelf and it will sell but i don't think we're necessarily being as innovative in the packaging arena as we are in the product that goes into it right, okay. um, so again you know there are impacts on carbon but reducing plastics etc we end up doing it through a necessity particularly when plastic costs are going up but not necessarily through transforming the customer experience through some more interesting, innovative packaging. So I think that's right. that's where we um, we need to focus because it, it's a holistic experience for the customer uh, yeah. and we're doing 80% of the job and we're still thinking particularly as retailers of a, a piece of packaging as a selling face for the customer to get all of our messages onto rather than using that packaging structure to do something else as part of that customer experience. So right. return okay. is a good example. Um, where people would buy into something and then bring it back and use it again and creating a whole new system so i th- I think we've relied too heavily again on on the the machines that erect the current cartons that put your ready meal in a box sure. that give a, a decent um, selling face because actually there are there are issues with moving away from that in terms of how you get impact for the customer at the shelf, but there are also big cost implications in how you change packaging lines, for example. So again, I think that's probably where the next 18 months, I don't think it's longer than that, we've got to step change.
1: Right, interesting. Yeah, that's maybe think that could be a future podcast episode, actually trying to look at maybe a couple of different other other sectors that that do that kind of packaging within the product proposition quite quite well. Yeah, that's really interesting. Reflecting back over your your, your time uh, in the consumer goods sector, you've obviously had a you know a, a, a good period of time within what I would term kind of CPG, so the the big branded, often global manufacturers, so you know PepsiCo, um, and then you've obviously had you know a number of years in in, in retail and wage What 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 are the kind of the big differences in terms of how those two sectors approach innovation?
0: sheer scale. So I would say uh, I thought. I thought PepsiCo was a fast moving it is a, it was 10 years ago a fast moving consumer goods operation but the amount of npd that we launched in a year was peanuts compared to what retailers churn out so right. i think uh, i think processes are similar in terms of going through stage gate processes and sign offs i think within manufacturing you own the manufacturing relationship so you can be on site changing stuff talking to the factory manager and stuff that's a little bit more removed when you're a retailer because you're using that through a supply base Mm -hmm. um so i I think innovation can be more efficiently delivered in the manufacturing base than it can as a retailer Um, but the sheer volume of what we churn through because of the sheer number of different uh, supply base that we work with is off a different scale. So um, we have a team of people who just manage the timelines, the planning process of getting an idea from a sketch on a piece of paper to a shelf. Uh, In PepsiCo, that was much more straightforward, much more lean, and you relied much more on the systems to do that because there there was just fewer amounts of it going through. But then they had a bigger impact. Um, So, you know, I was... When I was there, we launched great British-flavoured Walker's Crisps. So Marmite, a Heinz tomato ketchup, and a Branston pickle. Um, And that was the biggest thing we did that year. It came with a massive TV campaign, a huge trade plan campaign. But everything that you work on is up to the point of purchase. You then hand it on to somebody else to execute on your behalf. Whereas in retail, you've got that final mile. Where's it going to go on the shelf? how you're going to get partners in branches to talk about it and and, uh, you know excite customers etc so the kind of what you do in your role as an innovator is quite different between the two as well right okay both equally interesting um, but I think I wasn't prepared for the scale of change uh, and the speed of, of getting things done and it's and it's incredibly competitive I mean you know there's a very um established retailer market here in the uk who are all busy yep. doing what we're doing and so you're constantly looking over your shoulder whereas if you are the number one brand in that market you're much more likely to be leading that market rather than and looking to globally what's going on rather than being so um focused on what's going on in the uk yeah
1: true right okay and and how has innovation process changed over your time at uh, at waitrose
0: I mean, the demands for it to be faster keep coming right uh, yeah. I think I think I think the systems are there i don't I don't think they're as good as they could be, and I'm sure everybody would say that about their innovation processes. you know the the creative bit is the bit that we all get out of bed for in the mornings developing those products or the yeah. packaging design or whatever it happens to be but landing something on shelf is so complicated involves so many different people. The process is probably the bit that gets everybody bogged down. So I wish there was a magic button that just made all that stuff kind of happen. And maybe one day there will be. Um, but in the meantime, I think it's a necessity of landing things right first time. I think the pressure on return on investment is, um, is increasing and will continue to increase. Okay. You can't keep, launching the amount of and not just waitrose the industry launches um without i think being with the amount of data that we've now got at our fingertips the amount of testing that we can do and stuff up front without increasing your return on investment and therefore being much more thoughtful so i'm hoping that the funnel will narrow and we'll have fewer but bigger wins um, but i think we're a little bit away from that because the market just changes underneath your feet so You know, this time last year, we weren't prepared for wheat prices up where they are, packaging prices up where they are, and a cost-of-living crisis that that people would be facing into the summer. We were hoping this was going to be, well, a summer festival. That's what you can see if you walk into Waitrose. Because nobody traveled for a couple of years, and this is going to be the big year of the big escape. So um, I think that demand for being agile and constantly updating and changing will continue. But there will be much, much more pressure on return and investment because we've sweated the assets that we've got. If you're going to make investments now, you've got to be absolutely bulletproof that they will return.
1: So you mentioned ROI, so how, how do you kind of coach your your, your teams to, to manage uh, or understand the level of, of risk within individual products, I guess, that they're kind of coming to you and proposing for for
0: launch? so i mean we we do the the sort of normal analysis on the shape of the market who the customers are what penetration it will drive what rate of sale etc but we've we've put to mitigate some of the risks we have put a big emphasis up on um investigate so we we use a language in waitress called the six eyes um and we um we did a kind of review and understood that actually we weren't putting enough effort into the investigation up front so the scene setting the understanding the scale of the risk and the return required but also on the um evaluating at the end of the process to make sure that you're constantly improving we were launching and leaving to a certain extent um just because of the speed of what we were doing so yeah much more upfront testing of concept ideas of packaging ideas in particular so that it it lands right first time and then a huge focus this year for my team on that kind of the final 90-day review and sharing those learnings back so we don't make the same mistakes twice not um, okay. it, it's not rocket science but it's again it's not the creative sexy part of the job um, but i've seen a step change in the um, upfront testing of ideas so when things get presented to us a panel There'll be data that tells you that you know the national um, sample of the uk think this the waitrose sample think why we think yeah. by doing this bit here we can improve our penetration by a couple of points etc so it's right. definitely being used in kind of selling in the ideas to the business but the final the final piece will always be is it commercially viable and is it worthy of putting our name on the packet? And so that's right. both kind of standards of um, signing things off won't ever change, but I think we're coming out to it with much more data than we've ever done before.
1: Right, okay, that's interesting. Um, and then you, you touched on it briefly a moment ago, you and I were talking about it before we, we, we started this this episode. The, the, the cost of living crisis is gonna, looks like it's going to be with us for at least a year, I guess. How do you think that's likely to impact products innovation, not just in Waitrose, but a, a, across the... the the UK market for the next 12 months?
0: It's interesting because Covid massively suppressed innovation Uh, I mean very little happened in the last couple of years because it was the pipeline that got shut down and, and furloughed within manufacturing and not so much within where we are Uh, So we've seen a huge uptick this year in things that are launching to the market. So I think there is a a backlog of innovation that people will want to get out, will have invested in. So I'm not sure it will slow down. I do think the emphasis or the timing of things will change. So the cost of living crisis For every customer means they are watching the pennies Uh, and we've looked back at the 2008 kind of customer behaviors and what happened in the last recession and a couple of things people tended to eat in more rather than eat out so Mm
1: -hmm.
0: um, that's a kind of a share of stomach opportunity for us as an industry people use up stuff a lot more so kind of decreasing food waste but making sure meals can go further so actually that's really useful for scratch cooks and how you might be able to capitalize on that kind of market yeah. um but the biggest thing is is the value of the basket so you know how much are you getting for how much and, and how much do you value that so um, making sure that you can communicate value that isn't just the price on the shelf but is what you're buying into so for us our animal welfare standards they will not change even in a recession mm-hmm. that's what we do that's how we do it but we need to be much better in how we communicate that to a customer. So if they care about that, um, they can make a kind of a a judgment on how much it's worth to invest in a steak or a a packet of mints. So I I think it's how you communicate value in all of its forms is gonna be um, what will make innovation successful the next couple of years. It's probably not how a lot of it was devised, but even now you see people kind of fine tuning their communication stances at the moment so that customers are getting the value message of whatever it is that you're trying to sell so yeah it may be that the premium and some of the premium end of the market within food and drink i imagine may get a little bit delayed because you're not going to have 20 quid for a, an interesting new spirit uh left over at the end of the week in the way that you might have envisaged this year i, right. I don't think it'll slow down a huge amount because i think commitments will already be made i think we'll probably yeah. see a big impact this time next year
1: right okay okay so let's just turn our attention to the future of, of innovation for a moment. And obviously, you know, we, we, we do seem to be kind of lurching from economic crisis to economic crisis. So it's very hard to kind of um, predict for with any accuracy. But let's just think what, what innovation in a, in a large retailer like Waitrose could look like in, in five years time. Um, from a structure perspective, in terms of how you're thinking about structuring your, your teams, what, what, what do you think is the kind of the, the direction of travel at the moment?
0: Um, I'm not sure that's going to change that much. We have a, a pod structure here. So we have teams yeah. that work collaboratively across buying, technical and product development, but actually much broader than that merchandising, supply chain planning, et cetera, et cetera. That's a change that we made about three years ago. Um, and that collaborative working when it works well is the most cost effective way of launching a product and, and making it successful because you've got the great thinking coming from all parts of the business who all believe in what it is that you're trying trying to launch so i don't think the structure is necessarily going to change i think um we've got to be really conscious that what we do is competing with brands um so actually being part of that wider conversation that what a customer is seeing is really important rather than being isolated in your own brand world i think is really important so um i yeah, I, I think there's going to be a lot more structure. I, I think the, the issue at the moment is, you know, there's cost price creases all coming across the industry. Um, that there's a huge amount that our teams are having to deal with on a daily basis. So trying to remove cost of goods, um, trying to find new distribution routes across Europe and et cetera, et, yeah. et cetera. So it's, it's hard whilst you've got a lovely collaborative group. To make sure that innovation remains the focus within that group, that's probably the biggest challenge in the next twelve months, just because of everything else that's hitting them on a daily basis. But right, okay, I yeah, I'm not envisaging anything massively changing from a structure perspective.
1: And just just build a little on that pod pod structure because you know you you guys have been doing it for a number of years. It's not necessarily something that other retailers outside of food and drink would would uh, would, would do. So that when when you say cross functional, that's not just product development people, that's, you've got what, buying merchandising, supply chain, et cetera. Just talk to me a little about how how they, those work.
0: Yeah, so the idea behind it was that the people who know the category the best are the people who live and breathe it day to day. So yeah. actually developing for that category, your best place if you know what the kind of average rates of sale are, you know what's going on in the wider category from a branded unknown brand perspective. Um, you're getting feedback from the merchandising teams on what the packaging is is working on shelf and the heights, et cetera, et cetera. So the team work collaboratively on it, because a product developer alone cannot land a product. They need their technical support right. and they need their buying, their, their buyers in there. And I think it's it when it works, and it doesn't always work, but it I, I think nine times out of ten it does, you just see a better, much more well-rounded, well-considered proposition coming by the time I see it at a panel. Um, if the, the team have all bought in. They've, they've had the difficult discussions on how much cheese are you putting on the top of that lasagna because that negotiation would okay. happen between the product developer based on what they think from a taste perspective, what the supplier can dose onto that thing and what we can afford from a, a, um, a margin point of view. All of those difficult conversations in constructing product have happened by the time it gets to us. Um, and therefore, it's, it's really likely to be have been constructed in a way that will win on the shelf in a long-term way rather than launching something that might be brilliant from a customer point of view but the margin and the distribution channels and where it has to sit just doesn't work from a a kind of a um, merchandising and and branch distribution point of view. We have these conversations quite often at Christmas when we're developing beautiful desserts or or chocolates that are incredibly delicate. Um, You can't just put please be careful on a case when it goes into a branch. You yeah. have to understand the rigor that that product will go through in that final you know, five meters of getting on the shelf and make sure you've considered everything that you possibly can
1: yeah.
0: for brilliant product to reach the customer as you intended. So I think it's had a better impact on product um, briefing, working collaboratively, collaboratively up front on what it needs to achieve and, and how it needs to perform through the supply chain. Than if when the PDs were and technical teams were working on their own. So we're seeing better success rates. We're also getting better okay. buy-in because people are working on right. common objectives and therefore everyone's got a bit more skin in the game to make it to to make products stick. And and that's okay. that's where you get your return on investment. It's not in the first 90 days, it's in the first, you know, three years. Um right. so yeah, I, I think it's definitely working. I think it's going to get broader. So the more you know, collaborative you can be across other channels that need to deliver things to market. But the the kind of core, if you like, are the buyer, the technical person, and the product developer.
1: Right. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Um, And and let's just think about process for for a minute. Staging gate has been certainly you know kind of five or ten years ago was pretty much the default across most uh, most retailers. And and, and and I think fundamentally still many elements of that are there now. How, how do you think processes is likely, uh, likely to evolve across uh, retail over the coming
0: three to five years? Um, I mean, it's got to automate. It has to. I think StageGate works when you've got um, a certain volume. I think the minute you start getting huge amounts of volume, it becomes a thing on its own to try and manage. And you get, as I said earlier, you get bogged down in admin. I hope that we develop processes that are automated in a way so, you know, a barcode will automatically be um, generated and applied to a piece of packaging because something further upstream yeah. has triggered that rather than people having to still do the individual steps. I think the stage gate process of ideating checking in to make sure something's worth doing, going through the development, signing off the product, launching it, and then review it. In principle, there's nothing wrong with that. It's the sheer complexity of the bits in between that are the treacle. Okay. And that's what I would like to see streamlined through technology in the next, um, well, as soon as possible. We're having conversations now about you know, what can we learn from other people in other industries about streamlining our processes. Um, and pulling all the data into one place so it can kind of all shoot in different directions when it needs to do so, that would take a huge amount of burden out of the system and allow us to be faster to market, which in in hopefully will mean we deliver more revenue. So um, okay. I think that's probably the rather than a structure process. Structure process is going to be where the investment in thinking time and probably money is going to have to be in the next twelve months.
1: Right. Okay. And, and do you think uh, expectations about um, product innovation are likely to? fundamentally shift in terms of, you know, l- l- launching for ever ever lower kind of um, costs and, and, and reducing the failure rates down to zero? Do you, th- do you think that's, you know, that, that's going to shift fundamentally?
0: Uh, I think it will have to, particularly if you're making big investments or you're asking supply base to make big investments, you've got to be really sure on, on your returns. Um, yeah. My worry is getting down to zero wouldn't that be a nice place to be from my perspective i don't think it would because that means that you're you're iterating you're probably not being breakthrough and actually nobody true innovation is getting people to um to buy into something they just never knew that they really needed and so my my worry on just focusing on return on investment will mean that you will iterate more and more and you'll have more and more brand extensions or flavor <clears throat> extensions. That's not, that's not real breakthrough innovation. We make the big breakthrough and we make the big, slightly more risky bets. Yeah. Um, so as an innovator, I hope we don't get to 0%. I'd like okay. to get better than where we are today. Um, but I think you have to be prepared um, to move markets on. You know, the, the plant-based people weren't sitting there five years ago. If, if they were measuring their innovation based on you know, medium terms return on investment, they'd never have launched Veg Butcher or wherever it happened to True. be. So yeah. I, I think there's a very fine balance um, to play. Um, but you also have to have some wins under your belt. So you can be a little bit yeah. more risky when you've got a few more wins. So um, yeah, I, I really worry that it becomes a return on investment only because customers shop um with their hearts and their minds as well as their pockets Mm -hmm. and so we measure um net promoter scores as an important part of how we measure success not just kind of money through the tills Um, we want people to choose to come to waitrose for our own brand as much as they do for the brands Um, and therefore and getting things from us that they can't get from anybody else and that means we're going to have to be more innovative and more unique for that group of customers otherwise what's the reason to come across the road and shop with us um, right. It becomes a, a sort of diminishing return, so it's a fine balance.
1: Okay, so d- d- definitely, some uh, acceptance of, uh, of of failure, I guess, would be yeah, you know, what w- one of the things that the innovation sector has to has to live with to get those big bets uh, right. Well, o- o- on that note, you know, any kind of um, product launches that have, have disappointed, at the failure the failure word is often misconstrued at times, but in any kind of failures over the last two years within. Within ratios and what what did you learn uh, from it moving forwards?
0: Yeah, I was um, I was thinking on that actually because we kept going in COVID uh, with our innovation plan. So last year we launched Levantine Table, which is our Middle Eastern range. Yeah, uh, and we've just won the Grocer Gold Own Label Range of the Year. Right, yeah, so, we're incredibly proud. So actually, yeah, we took we took what was a pretty big risk actually for us as a, a food. Um, grosser in that time and part of it was a lot of the work and a lot of the thinking we're doing we just needed to get it over the final line in COVID so I think for us in the last couple of years there haven't been um, we we haven't necessarily seen failures in the product that we've launched I -hmm. would say however what what we haven't done as much as we should have done is because of COVID and working from home we became much more too much internally focused internally focused in our industry, but also not getting out to see what's going on in the rest of the market. So I think the hard work is happening has had to happen now to make sure the innovation of the future is as broad and as appealing as some of the stuff that we've previously launched, because you couldn't go on market trawls at last Christmas because of, of sure. COVID. Yeah. You couldn't get out and experience that bright new restaurant because it probably wasn't opening. And if it was, uh, you know, it was shut due to COVID. So I think the bit that we've got the failure, if you like, from an innovation team, I would say, is becoming too insular as a result of COVID and not taking those shackles off quick enough to be creative innovators as we've come out of the pandemic. Um, And so getting people out and about, getting people out doing visits, getting people into branches, getting people into the supply base, all of that is incredibly important, but it took a while for us to ramp back up again. and with hindsight, we probably should have done that faster. But I think people okay. were naturally nervous. As human beings, sure. we've all been naturally nervous about what's going on. And now we're learning to live with COVID. It's kind of yet another day. So, um, yeah, it's pushing ourselves to be okay. as innovative as we would have once been pre COVID and not to just think about the world in the four rooms, the four walls that we happen to be sitting in on our own some okay. right now.
1: So, now, now that you you are out kind of looking at the rest of the market a- a- outside of Waitrose, what, what's the best? Either products launch or, or range that you've seen uh, over the last couple of years.
0: So, because uh, I knew you were going to ask me this, I went and did a bit of a trawl last night of uh, the competitive <laughs> uh, set, and there, there's been there has been a lot of brand extension, I would say, um, which is novel but not particularly breakthrough. Okay. Uh, I was a bit underwhelmed, which sounds awful. Um, but the one product I did pick up, and I've got it here because I bought it for my lunch actually, and it's probably right. I guess. Um it's more about what this represents, but I think the veg and vegan market have been much more innovative in the last two years in terms yeah. of turning vegetarian food to be as interesting and tasty as a meat alternative, so that meat eaters automatically move into that sector and nudged into that sector rather than being full-blown veggies. That's probably the biggest thing. Bol is one good example yeah. of that, there have been there've been many more. And I think um all of the own brand retailers have massively upped their game in the veg and vegan space. So as a sector, I think that's been the most innovative over the last couple of years, making non-meat eating just part of everyday life. And I think the um, credit crisis will have another impact on that. I think people from an affordability point of view will automatically start to turn to more interesting vegetarian food, probably from scratch rather than processed. But yeah, so that's an area that I think done particularly well um yeah the rest of it has been a little bit lackluster i would say okay <laughs> okay marking our own homework <laughs>
1: um now i'm 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 with you i'm a big fan of the plant-based sector i think they've got a very interesting tipping point coming up where these alternative proteins at the point that the the, the taste and the texture is either similar or better than the meat and and the cost yeah. and the price is Either the same or lower than the meat, I think that we will see a very significant shift in consumer behavior and that, that could be quite soon.
0: And there's, and I mean, there's a group of consumers who've been thinking like that for a long time, the younger generation who are yeah. much more likely to be vegetarian or, or vegan from a climate point of view as much as a cost point of view, but it just, it'll just go hand in hand. So um, we were just, you know, chatting as a, an innovation team last week, the number of people, Meat Free Monday is just normal now it's normal in yep. schools, it's normal in homes, you wouldn't have said that five years ago. So I think it will, I think it will continue to grow, not just the plant proteins, but doing interesting stuff with veg, which, again, is just fundamentally healthy and good for you. Yep. Um, it's not to say that meat isn't. Um, but I think from a value point of view, that's where we're going to see a lot of the growth in the next six months, definitely.
1: Um, and then we're, we're coming to a close just the the, the the final topic just kind of touching on what what we mentioned right at the start of the uh, the, the episode just in terms of innovation as a, as a career for you know we, we talked about kind of young people coming into it what, what 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 are the skill sets that you think that that make successful product innovators product uh, product developers what do you what do you like to see in people uh, within your within your teams that you think will make them successful
0: I mean the first thing is a passion for the customer. Um, and a curiosity uh, because you can't train that I think you've got to you've got to be able you've got to love whatever the industry is and and for us it's food but you've got to be curious about what the customers want need desire and have a passion to go and create it Um, I think things like being commercially astute as a product developer now you need to be much more commercially aware um, than probably you did 15 years ago just because of you know as we talked about the return on investment pressures and margin pressures but you can train some of that kind of stuff and you can be supported through that if you're working with your buying teams Um, I think you have to be great at analyzing data because we've probably got more of it now than we've ever had before so whether it's uh, loyalty card data whether it's using services like yours on testing um cantar iri mintel there's so much out there it's about picking out the right fragments of insight that will help you build a customer winning proposition so analytical skills um which is quite is can be quite at odds sometimes with massively creative people but i think all people think that's the case it's not about being brilliant at math it's being analytical with with data however that data is presented to you yeah um and then the, the one thing I would say that I wish I'd done earlier in my career was um, learn to negotiate. Um, right. And that's not necessarily a selling negotiation, but a negotiation so you get what you want and what's the best overall outcome for your product. Like I was talking earlier about the amount of cheese on a lasagna. That's a negotiation to be had with the supplier, with the technical manager, with the buyer. Um, right. And I think there's going to be a lot more negotiation skills required to land Brilliant innovation going forward, just because of the sheer number of people you have to work alongside and collaborate with to get something good on the shelf. So um, that they would be my analytics negotiation, but you can't teach the passion, you've got to be, you've got to have that, that want and that desire and that forward looking um, perspective.
1: And what what do you think is the, the, the one thing that the innovation sector does does amazingly well that's not necessarily kind of understood externally, either within the kind of the broader market or by, by consumers.
0: Yeah, I th- I think we understand a lot more about human psychology than people would think we do. So, you know, we right. we consider what a customer will see, what the customer will think, and how they will feel based on a piece of packaging or a product or wherever it happens to be. And I'm not sure people realize how much depth of thought goes into um, creating a product. I was reflecting on the communications around COVID in the last couple of years. You know, the the way, because at the beginning they were so effective, is because somebody understood the human psychology of what it would take to switch us on to behaving in the way that the government wants us to, us to behave. Yeah. And marketeers and product developers and packaging developers do that every day, thinking about the language they might use or the um, the color schemes or the flavor profiles that will will have an impact on human psychology, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure people ever realize quite the depths of understanding a customer that we will go to to create something that they truly will desire and and pick up.
1: Right. Yeah, it's it's quite deep levels of empathy, isn't it? I think that's required yeah. to kind of yeah. really land innovation. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, we, uh, we've we've come to a close, um, Emma. It's been fascinating talking to you. Um, Many thanks for giving up your time. You're very
0: welcome.
1: And yeah, I I look forward to continuing the conversation at a future date. Uh, Emma Bill, Head of Products Innovation at Waitrose, thank you very much for your time uh, on the Innovate podcast. Thanks.